by acknowledging the Kurnai people, who are the traditional owners of this land. And I don't do it because it's a politically correct thing to do or because it's something that, you know, we think we should do. Do it because they're actually the traditional hunters and the game managers of this land. There's been people hunting and managing game here for at least 18,000 years. Uh, where we are near them is actually an Aboriginal word for spear, for a hunting tool. So this connection with the land that the traditional owners have, this connection with wildlife, this sympathy for the land and for the wildlife, is something that carries through very much into what we do as hunting. There's an indelible link there. So we acknowledge them as the traditional owners and the traditional hunters of the land. As Neil said, deer management and the future of deer, which are the two sessions I'm going to do today, really tie in very closely together. I've broken them up into two bits just to keep a bit of a logical order from it. So I work for ADA. I'm not a wildlife scientist. I'm not a professional deer manager. I'm a passionate hunter who who learns a lot about deer because that's what interests me. And there's a lot of wildlife science. Aldo Leopold spoke about that, who's the father of wildlife science, 80 years ago, that there's this, in hunters, you've got this very specialised, very narrow interest that should be used for the management of wildlife because no one else is going to do it as much as people who have got this real, this real bug, this real interest. That's Aldo Leopold there. Like I said, he wrote uh, the text wildlife management, uh, game management, which is still used today. Um, 83 years ago, he wrote that. Um, he died in the 40s. Also wrote a book called Sand County Almanac, which if, if you like wild things and like to read, it's... He went from writing this game management, which is this very dry, very prescriptive textbook, like I said, that's still used today. And then he wrote a Sand County Almanac, which could almost be a book of poetry. It's, like, it's the most beautiful prose you'll ever read. A very, a very interesting man. And Leopold described game management as the art of making land produce sustained annual crops of wild game for recreational use. The reality is there's very little actual game management that goes on in Australia. Uh, There's a veneer of game management put around setting duck seasons, if any of you are duck hunters. There's these inputs go in and it's phrased (coughs) as game management, but it's kind of not really. That's a political process. They're moving towards an adaptive harvest model here in Victoria, which looks good on paper. We'll see where it goes. It's hopeful that we'll actually move into actually managing ducks based on science, not based on competing political interests, but time will tell. Sunday Island, which a few of us are members of, which I think there's some information in your packs that you got this weekend. Hog deer are managed according to game management principles on Sunday Island. Uh, There's a few private properties in Victoria doing it with hog deer quite successfully. And the fallow deer in Tasmania are managed under a quality deer management regime uh, with government involvement, but that's really at the crossroads at the moment too. There's some big challenges there and and other interests pushing against the management of those deer. So we'll see how that plays out. So what we focus on more than game management here in Victoria particularly is deer management. And when we talk about deer management nowadays, we're typically talking about managing overabundant wild deer. Uh, you would have heard a bit this weekend. It hasn't always been the case. Um, in the early 1980s, ADA employed Max Downs, who was a wildlife scientist, the first um, person employed by the Victorian government to oversee game. And getting late in his career, the ADA employed him to look at Samba because at the time they were worried about what was happening with Samba deer in Victoria and whether there would still be Samba deer in Victoria. Not all that long ago, you know, like early 1980s, that was happening. I started hunting in the mid-1990s, um, and it wasn't uncommon to spend a whole day in the bush then without finding any fresh sign. We could go 
we were hunting with hounds and we could go and not find a mark to start our dogs on, busting our humps in the bush. Then along came the fires. That same crew were taking big numbers of deer. I was talking to Peter Atkinson there before. There's been people in there, you know, taking 30 deer on a weekend in that same patch. And what we're seeing now in that same area is those numbers starting to tail off again, which is interesting. It's not nowhere near as sparse as it was back in the early 90s, but it's getting a bit more difficult to find a deer in there again, which is upsetting for some people and quite pleasing for some people, um, depending on how you look at things. There's a lot said about deer and their impacts, and there's undeniable detrimental environmental impacts from overabundant wild deer wherever they are. Uh, whether they be native deer, overabundant whitetail in the United States where they're native, have detrimental impacts on the environment. Undeniably, that's happening in Victoria, but, and you would have seen this in your field trip yesterday, through most of the inhabited range of wild deer in Victoria, the impact's pretty benign. A few of you would have been able to walk through that bush yesterday and without people pointing it out to you, wouldn't have been able to tell that there were deer in there. So... Whilst there are these impacts and we really need to be clear about them and evidence-based about them, there's also a bit of hysteria that says that, you know, deer are stuff in the newspaper today, you know, deer are the new cane toads and they're the most destructive pest and they're destroying all of the environment. It's great rhetoric, but it's just simply not true. That's probably not dissimilar circumstances to today. That's the early 2000s, so during the millennial drought, and that's the upper Yarra. Uh, a scientist named Amy Bennett was doing a thesis on the impact of the deer there and what you were seeing was that, that sweet grass, that fresh pick and these pictures here, you probably can't see it well with the light. You can see tall grass in these exclosures. So they're excluding deer. Without the deer there, that's what that grass would look like and it looked much like if when you're driving out, if you look out on the right up the hill here, it looked like a bowling green, completely grazed down to nothing at the time, we were still talking about courses like this, about Samba being a very solitary animal and you won't see them in big groups. And I don't know if anyone wants to count how many deer are just in that frame alone. Drought conditions, really poor tucker in the bush, not much sustenance, green pick. And this is in a Melbourne's water supply. Pretty detrimental impacts, not the sort of stuff you want to see. There's... Um, Stuff in East Gippsland, certainly along the coast where Samba are getting littoral rainforest, which is a nationally protected plant community, and the deer push through that and break up the littoral rainforest to the point where it's dying, to the point where we might... There could be plants go extinct because of the impacts of wild Samba deer on those plant communities, and that's a really serious thing, and it's something... We can't fall into the trap of being apologists for the deer. We, we have to go out and talk about the very real impacts and we have to put it in context we can't fall in the trap of being alarmist cyber and a lot of the people who are pushing on deer are being very alarmist uh, and being if not being dishonest they're certainly not putting any nuance or context around what deer are doing in the environment and we need to be the people who do that we as hunters with this really narrow specialized interest in the deer need to be the people who know about them and know that when you're having conversations with your mates in the barbecue yeah, there's bad stuff like this, but there's also stuff like what you saw in the forest yesterday, which is probably the more typical impact of deer. And at least the really scary impacts and perceptions. So we go out and we talk. That's me. I don't put up the vanity, believe me. Um, 
That's me speaking at a sustainable use conference in Queensland in 2016. I presented for, for ADA. Steve Garlick, who was here on Friday night, presented for ADA. Tim Thomas presented for Parrot Park. David McNabb presented for Field and Game. And just about every other presenter there was a wildlife scientist. And our organisations, the three of them, saw it as being very important to go there and talk about the role of hunters in sustainable use of wildlife and wildlife management. Because if we don't, everything that feeds into government policy, everything that gets discussed doesn't consider the role of hunters. And we are a very, very important piece in wildlife management, but we'll lose that, that role if we don't front up and, and do presentations and present our perspective to the people who make decisions. As I said earlier, it's because we look at deer differently. Um, Brett Mills took that picture in the Mitchell River, and this is the sort of stuff hunters see that nobody else who's interested in deer and interested in deer are bad because they do this, deer are terrible because they do that. Brett took those photos just because it was really interesting social behaviour of deer and pretty nice photo and pretty nice animals. And we view the animals differently, and we should never apologise for that. We should never apologise for liking them. I think liking them and respecting them is a very integral part of being a hunter. Tim would have spoken to you about that when he's talking to you about animal welfare and about having respect for the animal. Really, really important. We shouldn't apologise for that, but we need to be more knowledgeable about them. This is a very standard graph that people use in wildlife science, and it shows how wildlife populations increase. And you can apply it to just about every vertebrate mammal on Earth. There's, you know, kangaroos are a bit of an exception because they regulate their breeding in weird and wonderful ways, but most wildlife populations will go like that. They'll go up and down and up and down, and it's all linked to carrying capacity of the land. So whilst there's essentially enough susten nutrient sustenance in the land to support the population increasing, so where deer can get lots of food, where their calf mortality is low, where their fecundity is high, so when they can breed at younger ages and successfully breed, your population goes up. When that drops off, your population goes down and it bounces up and down and up and down. And what we're hearing, particularly in the last decade, is Samba will just continue to increase exponentially. There's only one way. It's a flat line, 45-degree angle trajectory, and that's the way it's going. And anyone who's saying that does not know the first thing about wildlife science. Anyone who's out in the public trying to create that perception probably has an agenda, but they don't know the first thing about wildlife science. So this happens with, like I said, with wildlife all over the world, certainly with every deer species in the world. This is how their population goes. And it's really important to know and understand that as hunters, because we're the frontline advocates for sensible deer management. And look, pretty good for hunters in, in a way, because at the moment, what we're seeing is a lot more deer. So if you're a deer hunter, that's pretty good. Also, you're seeing a lot more environmental impacts. So there's up and downs on that. That's a, a tool that government agencies use called the Generalised Invasion Curve. And it shows what actions would be appropriate to manage wildlife, any wildlife, at what densities. So there's a density where you can prevent wildlife populations from establishing a density where eradication is a feasible option, a density where you can contain the numbers at pretty well what they are, and then you get into the biggest part of that block, which is asset-based protection, 
which if you're genuine about managing sambar in eastern Victoria, very well-established species, reasonably high numbers. We don't know how many. Where they're having deleterious impacts, particularly in the east of the state, you're talking about asset-based protection. And again, people who talk stuff like eradication, it's a really good catchphrase and it's a really good stuff to try and push for funding, but it's not a feasible, realistic thing to be talking about. And, and that's where we are in most cases is asset-based protection, which leads us to stuff like this. Helicopter culling is the flavour of the day at the moment. Um, there's been one, there's one starting this week, I believe. There was a go at it last year. So it's shoot to waste. Um, people just shooting out of helicopters, leaving the carcass there to rot in the bush. From what we've been able to see, and we've asked a lot of questions and asked a lot of people, there's no clear reason why they're doing it in Victoria. A lot of fluffy statements about here's assets we're trying to protect, but when you drill down and say, okay, what's the specific asset you're trying to protect? What's the density of deer now? How many deer do you need to take in order to achieve your objective? Oh, we don't set targets, we're just, it's a trial. So I oh, don't begrudge this bloke. One second, you know, like, it's a pretty cool job for the blokes in the choppers. And believe me, they'll be guarding it, and they do. We've done parliamentary inquiries, and the blokes who do those jobs will really jack up if you start questioning the science and the value for money behind it, as just about anyone in this room would if you were that bloke in the chopper, because it's a really good, fun job. Like, you get paid to fly around shooting critters out of a helicopter. Hands up who wouldn't want that. <laughs> but it's probably not the best use of government money. There's a lot of money being spent very ad hoc on deer control at the moment, and most of it's probably not very well spent. And there's a really vocal lobby group who are arguing for just about every perceived solution to this big problem they're talking about, except for the one that's right in front of them, that's available now, and that the state can actually afford, which is men with guns shooting deer. That's the realistic solution. And you can often spot these people by their tendency to speak in absolutes. They'll, they'll talk about deer as if every deer and every deer population in Victoria is this amorphous thing that all behaves the same and does the same thing. They'll talk stuff like eradication. It's an ideological aim, but it's not practical. I often say they, they describe like lions and prescribe like lambs. They'll be very, very good at telling you what they think the problem is, but they've got absolutely no real-life practical solutions on how to handle what they see as the problem. And that's not to trivialise it, because like I said earlier, there's areas where there are really significant problems and we were dealing, um, Peter Atkinson and I were involved in an attempt to do stuff with the literal rainforest in Gippsland. Uh, worked with some environment groups and the land manager on getting a trial up where deer hunters would go in there, remove deer, really good science backing, everything behind it. And the rug got pulled out from under it very suddenly and got pulled out by the environment group that was pushing for the control because they're now chasing biological control and deer-specific baiting and stuff that in Victoria doesn't actually exist because a lot of their members don't like the idea of us crusty deer hunters going in there with guns. We're not a very attractive proposition to put to those people. And meanwhile, the plant species that these people sincerely care about are going to become extinct. 
the deer are going to continue to increase and do their damage and we all lose because of that. Nature loses because of that. As Victorians or Australians, we lose because another species goes extinct because of something that humans did or didn't do. But that's the sort of ideology we're dealing with. It's it's toxic to the deer debate. They like 1080, though. Yeah, they like poison. Um, I've heard one of those big environmentalists from East Gippsland on the ABC radio a few years ago saying, well, we should just drop 1080 through the bush. And the presenter said, well, what about the wombats and macropods and, you know, barred bandicoots and every other little native species? And his response was, oh, I don't think people would really care about that if a few of them die. Oh, and this bloke's a zealot about a particular plant. But that's the mindset rather than people like us people in this room who have got guns and beards and dirty four-wheel drives and camo clothes and maybe aren't quite de rigueur in those segments of society. And, you know, they talk about eradication's the big one. You'll hear them say, well, we should be interested in the eradication of deer. The, the reason we're not interested in the eradication of deer, besides the fact that we sort of kind of like deer, is that it's not practical. It's not achievable. There's, there's been two incidences, instances in the world where a vertebrate mammal once established has been successfully eradicated. It's a, both the same creature. Um, was in the Lakes District of England where they called it the Koipu, or it was in northern USA somewhere where they called it the Nutria. And it's an oversized rodent that was introduced for the fur trade. And it met the criteria for eradication. So in order to successfully eradicate a population, the rate of removal has to exceed the rate of increase at all population density. So everywhere they are, you have to be taking more out than a breeding. There has to be zero immigration. So there has to be no new populations coming back into the area where you're trying to achieve eradication. You have to be in a position where you can put every single reproductive animal at risk. So it has to be feasible to get at and kill every single animal in that population that's capable of reproducing. And so it's only done when you can monitor the animals at a really low density and where it stacks up financially and socially. And deer in Victoria, deer in most of Australia, there are some satellite populations of deer like fallow where a localised eradication is absolutely feasible and I would argue desirable. But for the most part, we don't talk about it because we deal in facts and that's just not something that's going to happen. The other thing we hear a lot, um, I heard it today, is that deer should be classified as pests, not game, because that will help deer control. <coughs> There's a big push on in Victoria from groups like the Victorian National Parks Association on that right at the moment. Um, my very cynical, jaundiced view is that has absolutely nothing to do with the control of deer and everything to do with their ideological dislike of hunting on public land. You classify deer as a pest in the state of Victoria, we can no longer hunt in national parks instantly. You can no longer hunt with scent trailing hounds. The result of that is less dead deer, but it's less hunters on public land, which is the objective. If these people know as much as they profess to know, they surely know that. If they don't, they're fools. If they do, then they're playing a very, very underhanded game 
and using the environment as a pawn to try and push an ideological aim, which is they don't like hunters on public land. The National Parks Association are very clear in their position statements that they don't like hunters on public land. And in my view, they're using deer management as a pawn and this argument about pests as a pawn to try and achieve that end, which is just dishonest. Uh, the other thing you'll often hear from these people is that hunters can't be a part of the solution because we only shoot stags. And the reality isn't borne out. Um, most of you people in this room, I'd say, be pretty happy to go out and bowl a hind over tomorrow or the next day. I certainly am any day that I go in the bush. And if you look at the harvest data that comes from the Game Management Authority, every single year, hunters take more female deer than male deer. Hunters like taking deer. For the most part, hunters like taking deer and taking some of the meat out and using it. But this furphy, and it keeps getting put up, you can't use hunters because they're just into stags. Well, sorry, the data doesn't stack up. So most of the time, if you want to control deer, bullets are your option. There's no poison registered for deer in this state. Uh, there's certainly some trials going on. There's um, some deer-specific bait stations they're trying to develop. They've developed one called the aggregator for goats that's really interesting. It, um, the, deer walk, the goats walk onto, it's like a bit of a Rio mesh treadle, and a bin opens up and they <coughs> pop their head in and they eat grain. So what they do is position these where there's no food and, and put an attractant in and the goats come and they get trained to eat the free feed and then they lace the feed and poison the goats. But they're goats, not deer. Even the much maligned amongst the hunting community fallow deer are considerably more flighty and towy and less able to be trained to come into a feeder. Certainly something as complicated as one that you have to step on in order to get a feed. So there is no poison delivery method that could be dispatched in Victoria. They talk about biological controls. There's no biological control for deer anywhere in the world. And with the exception of Antarctica, they exist on every continent on Earth. And there is no biological control. And the idea, not to put shit on Australia's scientific community, but the idea that we're going to develop that with a few shekels off the government table in Victoria just because a little group based in Carlton pushes for it's pretty fanciful in my view. So most of the time, if you want to do something about deer and their impacts, shoot them. There are exceptions. Um, this is up in the Victorian Alps. It's an alpine bog. And there's a frog species that lives up in the top of this bog, uh, critically endangered frog species. And there's a fungus that's devastating frog species throughout the world, the amphibian cithrid fungus. It's carried in tiny little spores. And there's a bog of a few kilometres down the mountain from this bog that's got that fungus in it, got that pathogen in it, and there's frogs dying. And they were very concerned that the frogs up in this bog will die. And they were concerned that the deer would wallow in that bottom bog, pick up these spores, come up to the top bog and spread it. Very genuine concern, quite feasible that the deer could do it. No evidence one way or the other that they could do it, but it was a pretty reasonable hypothesis, pretty feasible that that could happen. So the scientists came to um, this bloke, fortunately, Danny Hudson, who works for Parks Victoria, and said, we need to do a deer control <coughs> program here because the deer are putting this bog at risk. Fortunately, it was Danny because Danny understands deer and wildlife and said, the problem you've described to me, unless you can guarantee that we're gonna kill every single male deer, that ever comes into that area, we haven't mitigated the risk. If you want to protect this bog, 
put a fence around it. A very expensive thing to do, but you know, very high value conservation. <clears throat> so they did. Um, they helicoptered all the material in and Danny organised a group from the ADA and the SSAA and we hiked up there and assembled the fence. We got progress photos last year. Not only is the bog recovered from the deer damage of the deer wallowing in the bog, the frog species is still there, still surviving. Looks like whether we, can, we can't say definitively that stopping the deer getting in there stopped the fungus getting in there, but it was certainly a risk and that risk has been allayed. So there is deer control that doesn't involve bullets, but it's probably the exception and not the rule which is the end of what I talk about with deer management specifically. Anyone got questions on deer management? Yeah. I don't know if you're going to be covering it in your next presentation, but um, with the election coming up, who would be the best parties to vote for in our, in our interests? Um, well, I haven't got in the next one. Not look, Bob Brown. Um, yeah, not the Greens, typically. Um, <laughs> but look, in the federal election, federal politics doesn't impact us a great deal at all. Not a great deal of difference in the major parties. We're taking a very hands-off stance to this federal election just because there's nothing in there really that's going to impact hunting or shooting. Um, I know the Sporting Shooters Association nationally put out some advice. If you're after more specific advice on the shooting side of things, we tend to focus on hunting more than shooting. But beyond that, I wouldn't give advice on it. Um, now that we've had our state election, um, there was a lot of discussion previous about, of course, going along the fascist route of locking up more land. Now that the Greens have had a lot of the, their influence cut, is that still on the cards or is or, or not? It's still a possibility. If I was to have a bet, I would bet that there'll be more national parks in this state before there are less. Uh, but certainly that big drive and that big push, that great forest national park stuff has petered right out. It's certainly not big time on the cards and there's big challenges at the moment that governments have got with the timber industry and you can't move on state forests until they reconcile that and I don't see a reconciliation in sight. Not to say it's never going to happen but it certainly hasn't got that big push that it seemed to have 18 months ago. Well a supplementary to that, if that's the, if they're having such an issue with deer, how come they think well we've got this deer problem and why, why do they just want to simply eliminate the one tool that they have that is a minimal cost politics. I'll get to that in the next presentation. <laughs> I hope. Um, if I haven't answered it by the end of the next presentation, come back to me. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, I was going to ask you, are you, are you aware of any of the proposed legislation for opening up the, um, the side of New South Wales, the national parks there? Obviously, that you can go to state forests in New South Wales, but the, the national parks? Nothing at the moment, no. But no. the fence, they can't. Tim? Um, there's here and there there's discussion about Brumbies. If you go through when Brumbies are raised, it seems to get turned around to be about here. I think it's symptomatic of what's wrong with wildlife management in Australia in that we're not Why species. Do you say wildlife management, where, where that oh, there's wildlife management happening. It's oh, it's not always strategic or well considered. But what's happening with wild horses? Same thing. Deleterious impacts, overabundant wildlife. Personally don't care if they're native or introduced. The simple thing to do when there's too many of them and they're having a negative effect is remove them from the environment. And because of this man from Snowy River myth 
what people talk about charismatic megafauna and deer fall into that category as well as, as a charismatic megafauna and that's part of why we look at yeah, really nice photos like this and why we love deer. Horses certainly get that and tug at the heartstrings and you, so the Victorian government put out a horse management plan last year that was pretty sensible and pretty reasonable. <coughs> Lily D'Ambrosio, the Environment Minister, put it out, who's a fairly green sort of minister, and the level of bile that was directed towards <coughs> her on social media for daring to say that we might kill some horses to protect the environment was just staggering, absolutely staggering. Um, do deer get blamed for some of the damage horses do? Yeah. Do deer do some of that damage? Absolutely. Hard hooled ungulates in a really soft, fragile environment that they're not, that's not adapted to their use, absolutely there's going to be damage. But deer should be managed for that impact, just the same as wild horses, cattle, any overabundant native wildlife. You look at areas like Wilson's Promontory where kangaroos have been massively overabundant, grazed it down, deleterious to natural values and this big stigma about controlling kangaroos because they're native and, and my view is that wildlife management should be blind to the species and look at the impact and provided you're not doing a terrible disservice to the actual species, you know, making it extinct, then manage the impact. Anything else on deer management? Um, kind of. Around this um, <coughs> conference a few years ago, I remember there being a bit of resistance to being involved. Did you feel that when you were there? Or? No, no. It was Sporting Tutors were one of the sponsors of it. and No, it was reasonably hunter-friendly. Um, there's the Australasian Wildlife Management Society have an annual conference, and they used to be quite hunter-friendly and have turned the other way, and there's certainly a resistance to pushing anything pro-hunting at that. At that particular conference, no, but certainly other conferences we've gone to, there's rolling of eyes. I, I did a vertebrate pest conference in New South Wales last year and some really good people in the scientific community there, but some rolling of eyes that the hunter dared stand up and speak about our perspective of deer management in that state. Zane? I was just going to ask, on that topic of kangaroos, so you said you know, you're not in mates with them, is that purely the when we know that there's... Yeah, it seems to be the reason why kangaroos don't get controlled is because they're native. Wilson's Prom's particularly absurd because they're not native to Wilson's Promontory. Uh, kangaroos and common wombat were introduced to the Prom in about 1910 by the same people who introduced Hogdy there in about 1860. So um, the idea that you wouldn't control introduced wildlife in, the Wilson's, in Wilson's Prom just because it happens to be native to the same country you're in is... Doesn't seem absurd. It is absurd. It is absurd. <laughs> you can get permits for kangaroos, though. So professional shooters obviously do that. And yeah. Ask them for. Um, oh, the, the, there is management, but it's in Victoria. It's certainly very limited, yeah. and it's certainly like horses. It's constrained by social attitudes, rather than based on facts, data, evidence. What should we be controlling and why? The problem, though, the problem, well, would someone allow that for deer, though? So they don't like the hunters, if you like, but programs like that, professional shooters, is there any appetite for that in the anti community, if you like? Oh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're very big on anything that's really tightly controlled. So we do some programs with Parks Victoria with volunteers and big constraints around them, and they pay lip service to that, being, oh, that's okay, hunters can do that because they're in a box over there and they're fenced off and away from everyone. 
and they're very big, the anti-movement. They don't seem to have a particular problem with people with guns. They've got it in their heads that the people who get paid to do it don't enjoy themselves, I think. The blokes I know who are paid to do it certainly do. They don't seem to have a problem with... differently on the back of it's a job versus... Yeah, yeah, which again, as long as the animal gets killed and killed humanely, surely that's the outcome we're trying to achieve. I will move on, like I said, there's two bits. And the other um, session I've got to do is on the future of hunting, which is a pretty hefty topic. I did this course um, when it was back in Rawson, back in 1995, a man named Mike Harrison presented on the future of hunting. I was a young, keen hunter, wet behind the ears, and um, Mike gave us a very grim view and left me leaving a bit pessimistic about where things were going. I'm sort of sad to say that as much as he was very pessimistic and negative, much of what he said back in 1995 was right. The scene hasn't improved a great deal and we've gone backwards in a lot of ways. So here I stand and hopefully in, I'm no good at maths, but in however many years hence, you people aren't standing up the front saying Barry Howlett gave a grim view and things have got worse. Um, Look, we don't have a crystal ball, but we can sort of, have a look at what's going to happen in the future based on what's happening now and what's happening in the past, and that's what we'll try to do here. Uh, This was the vegan protests in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. Um, The thing that stands out to me about these protests, and we laugh and we ridicule them, these people are on the extreme fringe, but they got pretty well an entire week of media. They were trying to get people to watch a certain documentary and that thing was the most searched thing on the internet that day. So people did, they achieved a lot of what they set out to achieve. Whilst we might sit back and say, oh, well, they isolated themselves and they got themselves out of the mainstream. They don't care about being the mainstream. They care about getting their message out. And they got their message out and there's very few of them. And there were also, the other thing that strikes you is they didn't get universally pilloried in the mainstream media. They've got a media that is pretty well culturally sympathetic to them. Whilst they might say that the tactics went too far, a lot of people agree with the message, which is a real concern for us. There was a fair amount of um, backlash with regard to their tactics and their message. Yeah. I thought I heard a lot of people saying that they have not furthered their cause at all. I've heard that contention. I disagree just looking at if they set out to get people to watch that documentary, they got people to watch that documentary. They got a week of news coverage. They got people talking about the use of animals by humans. And I might get rushed off the stage for saying it, but there's there's certainly stuff that these people are talking about that most of us in this room would agree with, with regards to animal welfare and the less extreme bits of their agenda. Most of us are probably on the same page of, as them. And that sort of stuff breaks through. And like I said, they do well and they do well and they've got a, a very sympathetic media. The other thing they've got is a lot of resource behind them. This was 2016, I think, duck season. Billboards, the back of buses, high-profile sporting personalities from just about every code pushing this message, very slick, very well-coordinated message. For a small amount of people, they have a lot of money and a lot of resource behind them. And not only have they got this culturally sympathetic media, they're in what we would term a majority cultural position. Um, And I say that in that if you asked, and there was a poll 
before this year's duck season. If you ask most people in society, do they support hunting or not? The answer will be not. Uh, they're in a cultural majority position. That's, that's people, their visceral thought without even thinking about it is that they don't think it's a very nice thing. And the other thing they do really well is they cross-pollinate between issues. It'll be duck hunting this week, it'll be battery farming of hens next week, it'll be dogs in barley the week after. There's funds raised off the back of all of that. It all goes into the grand kitty and they strike very strategically and at the right time. Uh, and well-resourced and, and some very clever people in behind what they're doing. They shouldn't be dismissed lightly. <coughs> Them being in a majority cultural position means that we're in a minority cultural position. Most people in society don't instinctively, you know, we can sit down and explain it to them, but if you were to just ask them that yes, no question, most people will say no to hunting. And the, the very real consequence of that for people like us, and it's really not fair, and it's really unjust and it's terrible, is that they don't have to deal in facts and we do. They can say pretty well whatever they want and not much of it gets challenged and whatever we say gets challenged. So it, it, it imposes a really tight discipline on us. For people like me, that's a good discipline to have, that you always deal in facts. <coughs> but we need to understand that the people we're up against don't have to do that, and they don't do that. Barry, so why are they saying no to them? Is it because they see like that there with the ducks? No one wants to see an injured duck. No. Is it because they don't want to see... No, they don't. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to that um, later on. But it's interesting as an example of it, this is the Sunday age from today. And it's summed up to me about this, this cultural position. So, headline there, push to get deer hunters in for the cull, fairly innocuous headline. This is a story that was fed to the Sunday age by the Victorian National Parks Association. And it's part of their push to take away reference to hunting in the draft Victorian deer management strategy. The reporter reported it quoting the National Parks Association about this joint letter that's been written by all these groups, 90 scientists, agricultural and environment groups, so a mix of individuals and groups, doesn't name the groups, says the National Parks Association agree. Well, yeah, they agree. They wrote the letter and they sent it to this particular journalist. And I know that because I spoke to him on Thursday when he rang me for comment on the story and he was a few lines in, and I pretty soon realised he'd put the story up, so I said, did Phil Ignamels from the National Parks Association give you this story? And he said, yes, he did. So this story goes on and it says a lot of bad stuff, you know, deer are Victoria's cane toads and it's time to deal with them. A particular line in there basically saying that pest status would make it easier for hunters to hunt more deer. The thing that irks me the most about this is this journalist knows that it's rubbish. Not only did I speak to him at length, I sent him an awful lot of background material. So he knows our perspective on it, and we got quoted for a paragraph in the end saying that it's part of the VMPA's ideological opposition and that eradication's impossible, but we support managing deer numbers. That was our little footnote. The rest of the article takes a tenor that is clearly not based on facts, but you know, you're a hack from the age. They print redundancy letters more than they print newspapers nowadays. Every newspaper starts empty every day. You've got a friendly source who's on your cultural wavelength feeding you a story. You're going to look after it. You're going to push it their way. And our side of the story is not going to get a great hearing. And that's just one example from today in the, in the media. And this well, is the sort of stuff... Trump's where... right, fake news. 
It's, it's not quite fake news, but it's certainly um, the only reason you wouldn't put a headline above it saying opinion is that it's such a jumbled and confused story that you couldn't possibly be one person's opinion or they'd be committed. But it's, it's certainly very biased news and it's very biased news that's seen through a lens of most of the media think that way, live that way, are culturally sympathetic to people like the National Parks Association and not culturally sympathetic to people like us. So I thought it was a good example in that it was in the paper today. This is the other thing we're dealing with and this is the thing, if there's a take home message for people in this room is, I'm sure Stewie McGlashan from GMA said that. Sorry. Sorry, just, just on that, because it's relevant to right now we're talking about, why don't we have a counterproduction, a counterargument to these people? If these people are coming up with bullshit and we have to have facts, why don't we have a counter advertisement where we've got the, the netball there? Why don't we have something that, that counters that? You know, for example, if they, if they say something that's bullshit, why don't we have something that, that counters that to, to try and... Look, it's, it's not that we don't. Um, when that, that netballer one was on the, the anti-duck hunting campaign, Field and Game Australia were putting out heaps of material. They were putting billboards of their own up. It becomes a matter of resourcing at the end of the day. So not only have these people got resourcing, but they've got this sympathetic media that will run their story more than it will run ours. And there's public emotional buying. Yeah. yeah. It's inflationalism. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that 100%, but I mean, I've heard people say, oh, I won't um, hunt for my meat, I'll go and get it from the, from the supermarket. Are you stupid? Do you know where the meat comes from? Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I, I get, I get we'll, we'll, we'll get to that and why I think that is. Yeah. Um, so these are the headlines we can control. Illegal deer hunting, people doing stupid things, whether we like it or not, they're part of our deer hunting community. I can't stand here and say they're not, they're not one of us, they're not hunters. Yeah, they're hunters. <laughs> they're dickheads and they're idiots and they're criminals, but unfortunately they are hunters. They're certainly not representative of the vast majority of hunters, but the one thing we can do is not be part of these stupid headlines. That's the one thing that every single individual hunter that can control, and I'd urge you to do that. And this focus on deer, um, and it's in that article in The Age today about illegal hunting, they always trot that out. So the focus on deer puts a bigger focus on the dickheads unfortunately, which gets to the part of why I think this is, why I think society is like this. This is just my sort of, my opinion, I suppose. My mum grew up in um, Elwood, which is a suburb of Melbourne, just near St Kilda, back in the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s. My uncle went to CBC St Kilda, he was in the cadets, and every Thursday he'd jump on the tram with his 303 in hand and his short shorts and go to school and nobody batted an eyelid that there was a teenage kid jumping on a tram in what is now you know, inner urban hipster heartland with a 303 and they kept chooks in the backyard and every Sunday my nana would go out and grab a chook and cut its head off and pluck it up and that would be the family roast. And just about everybody in society back then in the 50s, even people who lived in those very inner urban environments, had a real connection <coughs> with killing to get food. It wasn't this meat comes on trays in the supermarket thing. It wasn't abstract. Most of them had an auntie or an uncle or somebody who lived out on a farm. And even if they didn't, they were people like my nana who kept their own chooks, cut their heads off. My great grandmother kept chooks where the um, National Theatre is in St Kilda now, had a big chook run there. 
So it was a part of everyday life for people not all that long ago. You know, in, my, in my parents' generation, there was this complete first-hand connection with the idea of killing for food. And the thing that's changed that more than anything is urbanisation. So more and more people moving into that inner city. And this graph here shows population density change over the last 40 years or so. And what it clearly shows is a heavy concentration of people moving deeper into the inner urban area. And Australia, we don't think about it because we've got this myth of you know this, this wide brown land and this huge continent with not many people. We're actually one of the most urbanised societies on earth, Australia. There's however many people there are in Australia, 23 million. Most of them live in Melbourne and Sydney in the suburbs. Places like WA, this this big, wide, massive, vast tracts of land. WA is the most urbanised state in Australia. Almost everybody lives in Perth and Freo. So we've got this, this really intense urbanisation in Australia and the political manifestation of this is most of the people who represent us in politics live in that inner, inner urban area. So each seat's based on... There's X amount of seats. You divide it by the amount of people in the state and each MP represents X amount of people. With density, we've now got as many MPs living within 20 kilometres of the Melbourne CBD as we have in the entire rest of the state of Victoria. And that's reflected pretty well throughout the country. And, yeah, there's exceptions to that, but for the most part, they're people who are now two or three generations removed from the reality of actually killing something to get food. About the small changes, like you know, when we were kids, you go to your local butchers and seeing the breakdown of the carcass yeah. out the front with the normie. It's all done behind closed doors now. How do we tackle that? That's a really good question. Um, and, and part of it's a push that we do is is normalising the use of wild food. We're, we're doing more and more stuff with really good chefs in Melbourne who are really keen on using game meat and we, we're promoting that as much as we can. If you can get these people who live in this inner city bubble to value the idea of, of wild food, and a lot of them do because they're sympathetic to not having stuff that's factory farmed and mass produced, that's a counter, but it's very difficult to counter. This one shows the percentage of Australians in rural areas from 1969 through to now, and it's just going down, down, down. This one shows the population increase from 1969, um, and this is a federal graph, so up against the number of seats in the House of Representatives, which is a flat line. So the consequence of that is every single member of parliament is representing a lot more people. For people like me who try and talk about what is a very narrow niche sectional interest, it's a lot harder to get their interest and to get a bit of their time. And you exacerbate that by the fact that most of them live in this inner urban bubble are disconnected from killing for food, don't have a sympathy for us to begin with. And pretty well all of the media live in that bubble. And I hear people in politics talk about how there were two Melbournes. There's the Melbourne within the 20 kilometres of the CBD and there's the rest of Melbourne and politically, they're two very, very different places. So that's a, a big challenge for us. Here's our positive counterbalance <coughs> to it. And this graph's now old and it's getting bigger. That's closer to 40,000 now. And that's the growth in hunting in this, in Victoria in particularly. 
but it's it's the growth in hunting. Most of that growth is happening in those outer suburbs, which again are becoming more and more politically important. A lot of those outer suburbs, you look at this federal election, you look at the last state election there, the marginal seats where the battle's been fought, and most of that growth, if you look at it, is in deer hunting. Um, from 8,000 in the mid-90s to nearly 40,000 today, uh, where other game hunting disciplines are pretty well flatlined, deer hunting's grown exponentially. I'd love to say that's just because ADA have sold the dream so well, but that's not the case. Um, a lot of it's got to do with more opportunity. There's more deer out there. There's certainly a lot more known about them. When I started deer hunting, and I'm sure a few of the old grey hairs down the back were talking about this over the weekend, like it was very much a secret society. There's certainly a lot more known. You, you couldn't come to a place like this and have a bloke the calibre of Daz Hawking stand on stage and say, go into this gully, come and look, I'll show you the map. Is exactly where you go to shoot a deer. That was nobody was giving you their spots like that. So, so that's changed and that's good. It's fantastic. There's more and more people enjoying deer hunting. It's a fantastic thing to be doing. Four wheel drives have become more accessible as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just about everyone's got a four wheel drive, and the tracks are so much better because they got risk averse. Because um, people started getting Subaru Foresters and thinking that they could go and climb King Billy in them, they started trying to make tracks like that accessible for Subaru Foresters. So the tracks are much better. Just about everyone's got a four-wheel drive and deer are much easier to find and it's, it's a much more attainable goal. It's actually easier now for a lot of people to get access to go and hunt deer in Victoria than it is to get access to go and hunt a rabbit. Uh, try and get onto private property just to shoot bunnies is tough. It's more deer than rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> rabbits can be hard to find, but it, it's just getting access. You can... You can walk up to the counter, buy yourself a game licence and go deer hunting. If you want to go rabbit hunting, you've really got to bust your hump to get yourself some good private property to do it. It's just <laughs> the world's changing. Um, Sorry, just on that, the policeman was talking the other day, I, I was unaware of it, that um, you can no longer hunt feral animals in state forests with the pest animals, <clears throat> only with the exception of a game licence, that's to hunt deer. Has there been any thought of a study into now that they've stopped people hunting pest animals in state forests, have the numbers increased or decreased? I don't know. Take it on notice. Uh, it's a very recent change. Yeah. And the rationale behind it's not a bit of a mystery yeah. to all of us. Um, it's just to stop people jumping. It's interesting or, actually seeing Stuart's opinion. Stuart's opinion. All right. Compared to that. He thought it wasn't the case, didn't he? He was. Very had a different interpretation um, of the changes, and I said, Look, the way I took it was it's now become a very grey area, yeah. But you know, hence, if you see a wild dog in state forest, technically you can't shoot it, but the GMA still want you to shoot it. We will look at that because that's an issue, certainly, where there's conflicting advice. Yeah. We'll want to speak to people about that. Uh, and I'm not going to give advice on the law or law enforcement yeah. <laughs> other than to say they would have spoken to you about that reasonable person test. Always do what a reasonable person would do. Yeah. The other advantage we've got is stuff like social media, websites. It's far easier for people like us to reach an audience now than it ever has been. And we go back to our friends at the Sunday Age. This thing struggles to move 100,000 copies in a city of 3 million people now. Media is that fragmented. 
and people are very agnostic about where they get information. Um, if you if a news story interests you, you Google it and you just click on the first link that comes up, you're not that concerned about, you're probably trying to avoid a newspaper that's got a paywall that wants you to pay to read their article and you go to someone who doesn't. People are actually consuming more information than at any time in human history. I read a quote lately and I thought it was amusing. It was something in the, <coughs> when we were young, in the news, someone told you what happened and it was up to you to make your mind up what you thought about it. Yeah. Um, now people tell you what you're supposed to think about it and you have to make up your mind whether it really happened. There's, yeah, and there's a lot of opinion <laughs> going on with that. There's a challenge for us in that the people who oppose us can get information out, but there's also great benefit for that. So we try and look, we do it better than most here in Australia in the hunting scene, but still nowhere near well enough. But ADA try and get that information to people through social media, just invested in a big web, web platform, um, stuff like we're recording. This is a podcast right now to try and get that information to as many people as we can. But it's a big benefit for us, but also a big challenge and I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but the social media stuff, don't buy into the anti-stuff. When you start arguing with them online, you're spreading their message. Share your own positive stories. The best thing you can do on social media is share your own positive stories as much as possible. We've got to focus on the negative sometime. Now, sunlight's a great disinfectant. We've got to call bad stuff out, particularly in our own community. But for the most part, if we can not buy into their rubbish and focus on what's really good, that's the best thing we can do with that. One thing I think I should suggest, uh, looking at other social media people like Stephen Crowder, and actually a couple more conservative ones as well, have actually had their platforms taken off them. Yeah. We, um, I believe it could be, we could be at risk of that, and uh, we might need to have a contingency. And it's, look, it's commercial reality. These Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, are all big multinational companies that exist to make money. Third party is the founder, he's a hunter himself. Yeah, but they're not a democracy. Um, they're platforms that exist to make money. It's it's all media, it's just a different type of media. The other thing we do to counteract it, certainly as ADA, is we do our own publications. So if you're ADA members, you'll get Australian Deer magazine every couple of months, which we think is a pretty good publication. We also do, this is conservation and hunting, that's a publication we do jointly with Field and Game Australia three times a year. It goes direct to every politician in Australia to their inboxes in Parliament. I'll pass them around if people want to have a look at them. So every single poly in Australia gets that, reads it. It has short, sharp stories, um, stuff that we want to focus on as a community, you know, counters to the animal activists, and also good positive stuff that hunters are doing, particularly in the conservation sphere. And that's been quoted in three different parliaments. I'll regularly be in parliament and have people, senior people, come and talk to me and say, I saw X article in that little magazine you do. Uh, it really works. It really gets the message home. We're dealing with people who are sometimes spending up to 20 hours a day locked in that building. They get pretty bored. That's a long day. There's only so much work you can do. If someone's dropped a nice, glossy magazine in there with good photos and not too many words in their office, they'll pick it up and read it. Um, the other things we do is we do a lot of a lot of submissions and we try to do as much joint stuff as we can. Did a joint letter with uh, Sporting Shooters about the National Parks Association stuff the other week, trying to work with other organisations wherever we can and, and get that message out. This is a briefing paper that we do 
just here in Victoria, we're, we're producing these for every state. So just when we go and see politicians, rather than sit down and talk and say, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, we leave them with something, again, really well presented, not too many words, something that people can, can read and digest and get our key talking points, and that outlines most of our big issues. Excuse me, are these available PDF on the website, for example? Conservation and hunting is usually available on our website. Uh, that one will be at some stage. We've only, Victorian Parliament's only just started their term and what we try and do is get round to all the politicians with it first yeah. and then we'll probably publish it. Field and Game will share the link with yeah, that. Yeah, Field and Game will share the link with that and we'll have it up on the ADA website pretty soon, but we'll have under our campaigns or yes. our resources tabs. Both of those. Yeah. yeah. But that one, the briefing papers we'll put up, a big thing we try and do when we're dealing with, with anyone is not ambush people. Um, so if we're going to say something to or about politicians, we'll say it to them first, give them every opportunity before that sort of stuff goes online. And in the back of that briefing paper, there's stuff on this sustainable hunting action plan, which if you follow ADA on social media or read our magazine, you'll read a lot about it. And that, that's something that came out. It's the first time it's ever happened in Australia. So a whole of government signed off by a cabinet plan to further hunting. And we looked at it when it came out and we were fantastic actions in there, bit of funding, really good stuff. And we looked at what's happened with these things in the past when we've been all excited about them and there's been no accountability. And you look at them five or 10 years later and they were a really nice plan that didn't achieve anything. We're really determined that wouldn't happen again. So we went and spoke to Jarla Pulford, who was the agriculture minister at the time, and put those concerns to her jointly with Field and Game again, and said what this thing needs is key performance indicators and regular reporting to keep the people who are meant to be delivering it on track. Because we've seen it before, we know what happens. Best intentions. And to her credit, she turned to us and said, well, why don't you write the key performance indicators? <coughs> So we did, and we sent them back to her office and said, here's what we think they should be. Um, she agreed, and we started publishing them. We published them, ADA and Field and Game both published them at least twice a year in our magazines. We published them in Conservation and Hunting and in Briefing Papers. I think we published them. Our magazine went out on a Tuesday. On the Wednesday, I got a phone call from a bureaucrat in a flat that we were doing this, and basically saying you can't do it, and they're all wrong. And my response was, well, you know, your minister signed off on them. Yeah, but they're wrong and, and you can't do this. And I said, oh, that's, that's fine. Go back to your minister and tell her that and she can ring us and tell us that and we'll change them, which never happened. But it, it really illustrated the point to me that this accountability is critical um, and the people being held accountable don't tend to like being held accountable, but it's a really important thing. So that's, that's a bit of what we're doing, sort of a tangible benefit of... The survey should be updated... Economic yeah, has just been out again. Yeah, so that's going to get up. There's a federal one happening at the moment and they're going to update this Victorian one. Peter Walsh, who was the previous Ag Minister, National Party commissioned that original survey in 2013, $439 million a year that game hunting contributed to the Victorian economy then. It'll be significantly more than that now. And that's been a really powerful tool for hunting. That gets routinely quoted by both sides of politics as to why hunting is worth supporting. It's a fantastic tool. It's one of the, the great things we've got going for us. And there's other tangible benefits from the advocacy we're doing. It's not all downside. There's a bill sitting before parliament at the moment that will make it 
legal for people like us to shoot a deer, take the back leg to a commercial premises, pay them to turn it into sausages and salami and whatever else we want. So commercial processing of game meat, which has never been legal, something ADA in particular has pushed and pushed for for years and years and been told that it's not possible and it's bill before parliament, pretty confident it'll pass this year and it'll happen. And going back to how do we counter the influence of these people who are opposed to what we do and how do we counter... Yeah, venison diplomacy. Get really good and not like it used to be. It used to get people saying, I've had venison, it's terrible, because, you know, Bozo shot it, sliced it up in the bush, handed them a steak and, you know, the old story, you cook it with the stone, throw out the meat and eat the stone. Like, terrible. But getting it processed really well, sharing your venison with your friends and family is about the best thing we can do to promote what we do. Yeah, if you were saying that those are higher up and opposing this, do you think it's more harder education towards these people to try and maybe get them out in the field and show them? With which people, the bureaucracy or...? Yeah, look, with the MPs, it's certainly building relationships and educating them. With the bureaucrats... And that's where a lot of politicians are guided by the bureaucracy. For the most part, bureaucracy is just averse to change. Um, they just prefer, I'm probably showing my age, but if you've ever seen the English TV show Yes Minister, the more I do this job, the more you think that's a documentary and not a comedy series. It's just there are some bureaucrats who are absolute Humphrey Applebee's and their job is to stop anything from happening and they're very, very good at it. I don't know how we get around there. There's some really good people in the bureaucracy too, and I shouldn't be unfair. The bureaucrats, they're captured very early in the program. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's an absolute culture that flows through different departments and different bureaucracies, and it's very, very hard to counter. But that's part of our job. We have to. Just, I don't, I don't know the laws on meat processing and stuff like that, but I know that ADA do a few culls of Parks Victoria. Yeah. Would there be any issue there in, say, donating that meat to a homeless charity or something like that? Yeah, it's currently we can't do it. And this, well, this bill, that? Uh, food safety, so Prime Safe. Um, this bill won't fix that, but that's certainly our aspiration is to get to a point. Big programs in um, the United States, Hunters yeah. for the Hungry, uh, where hunters go and pay a processor to process that meat. What's really good about it is it's not like these canned food drives where Remember at school, your mum would give you the, the stuff out of the back of the cupboard and the label had fallen off and we weren't quite sure what it was and we'll give them to the poor. What we would be sharing with these people is absolute prime stuff that we value, like really good yeah. quality food. Certainly an aspiration, but not legal at the moment and, and not in this first tranche of changes to make it legal. But that's an aspiration of ours is to get to a point where a hunter could take in especially in this era where there's a lot of deer around, if, you, if you're an effective hunter and you're taking a lot of deer, most hunters don't like shooting to waste. They don't like killing something. It's not going to... Most people in the community don't, mind you. We, we did this conference at New South Wales last year and there was a survey done by Murrumbidgee or one of those areas, land care groups, so surveying farmers about their attitudes to deer control and even people struggling with overabundant deer had a real problem with the idea of shooting deer and leaving them to rot. It's, it's something that most people can't get their heads, and rightfully so in my view, can't get their heads around killing an animal and leaving really good meat to rot in the bush. 
Yeah. So it's certainly an aspiration. Well, I, but I know that ADA doesn't want to make enemies, but could that be a story that, you know, ADA want to give meat to charity and bureaucrats to stop in or something like that? Well, probably wouldn't go quite that far. And, and, yeah. and there's food safety... There's food safety in this state for a good reason too, and that's the line we've got. So it's it's more progressive change, water on the rock sort of stuff. The first bit is to get it so that we can go to a commercial premises for our own use, and there's already commercial processing happening in Victoria, but under very strict guidelines. So the deer have got to go and hole into chillers and stuff like that. So it's happening, and the more that normalises, the more we get an opportunity to push it that little bit further, show that it is safe. And, and get to use it. But yeah. We're very reluctant to go taking on <coughs> bureaucrats. Even we're relu- We don't take on anyone. We try not to. As you said, we're, we're not in the business of making enemies. The problem with taking on bureaucrats is that they certainly outlast the politicians. You know, there's, there'll be a nuclear holocaust and there'll be cockroaches, rubber tree plants and the Victorian bureaucracy will be the only things left. <laughs> like, they're survivors, so we're not going to make enemies of them. If you're listening to this podcast, you're all... Wonderful people, and we love you all. Uh, <laughs> and that's um, looking at where we've been. Neil said in his introduction, we've had just some fantastic people, particularly in this organisation. ADA was set up in 1969, focusing on the deer more than the hunters, and from the beginning was a very activist sort of organisation. There are a couple of giants in that, and that's a quote from Isaac Newton. You might not be able to see it. Well, it's, if, I've, if I've seen further, it's by standing upon the shoulders of giants, and that's if we look at the future of deer, we look at that, the great setting that these people put us on. Uh, that's Mike, Mike Harrison, who was a noted hound hunter with a big stag he shot stalking, and what Harrow instilled in us. Harrow was leading the fight for hound hunting in the 1980s when it was really hot. Uh, when hound hunting got banned and a lot of division, Mike got death threats and people threatening to burn his house down within the hunting community um, because they didn't think ADA was going far enough and didn't waver and didn't falter. And what Mike taught us more than anything is this belief that it's more important to do what's right than do what's popular. Or Bob Goff puts it, you know, better the hard right than the easy wrong. That's something the organisation really tries to do and it can be difficult sometimes. It's it's easy to be populist, but Mike instilled that value in us really well. And the other giant is that man who was Arthur Bentley. Um, there's a book, The Introduction to Wild Deer in Australia, which is still quoted by anyone who talks about deer, literally the book of deer on deer in Australia, and Arthur wrote that before he went on to form the ADA, and he's the bloke who set us up as this activist advocate organisation. He's been gone for probably a bit over 10 years now, when we're discussing certainly complex issues, um, Arthur was a—he was a brilliant man. He was—he was a great statesman. He was a great mediator and great at bringing people together. Man of just exceptional talent. But we'll still talk to each other when we're discussing a complex issue on which way to go. And one of our guiding principles is what would Arthur do? And normally, if we can put ourselves in that bloke's head frame and come out with what Arthur would do, we're not wrong. Um, we're taking the right path. So that's, we're very, very lucky to have been set up by people with great vision and with a real look for the future. And that's why we are where we are today. 
what I do is, Neil said, I spend a lot of time in there in Victorian Parliament um, trying to build relationships with people who make decisions <coughs> on behalf of hunters. Most of what we do is sitting down talking to people, trying to provide them with good value, good information, good knowledge, very rarely asking anyone for anything, just being a voice for hunters, making sure that if an issue comes up, hopefully we get a phone call before something bad happens, um, get a chance to mitigate it. So we spend a lot of time in there doing that. And whilst I say that we spend a lot of time in there doing that, someone mentioned the Great Forest National Park stuff or the park stuff before. I'm regularly running into the people who are agitating for more national parks or environment issues that tend to clash with ours, regularly running into those people inside Parliament. And they're on the case and they're advocating and they're very sincere and effective people and they're doing a very good job of it. So we're not the only ones who are in there pushing the barrow. And you've got Andy Medic in there, you've got the Animal Justice Party in there full time. I've sat three times now in the gallery and watched that bloke speak and he's very clear, effective, articulate, far more of a threat in my view than many people are giving him credit for. People are saying, oh, he's one man and they don't need his numbers. I think people are underestimating just how good this bloke is. Maybe I'm overestimating just how good the bloke is, but everything I've seen of him, if I take away my own bias that I fundamentally disagree with just about every word that comes out of his mouth, he's very good. He's quite impressive. What's his name? Andy Medic, and he's an Animal Andy, Justice Party Andy. medic. Medic. He's an MP for the Animal Justice Party, and he's in the upper house in Victoria, and he's for a new MP. He's like his page. He's, he's very good. I've sort of meeting with him. I sincerely doubt that I'll get it. But, you know, we try and talk to everyone. We, I've sought meetings with the Greens MPs every year I've been in this job, which is five years, and probably twice a year I'll send out emails or make calls seeking meetings and never get the meeting. But we keep trying. Um, How old is he? I don't know. He's an old bloke like me in his 40s. Um, scaffolder, I think he is. But very, very effective, very passionate, knows his stuff, completely opposed to what we do, which is using animals in any way. Is there any dialogue with the uh, committees and say, well, pushing international Do you have direct dialogue with the opposition? No, yeah, yeah, we speak to the people who are pushing for that. Yeah. And again, when I said about... With the, with the vegan activists, there's stuff we agree with them on. There's certainly stuff we agree with the people who are <coughs> pushing for the National Park. People like the National Parks Association who we're running up against, there's an awful lot about deer management that we agree with these people on. Um, it's just the tools, the tools and, and, and these polarised opinions at, at the edges, and it's trying to find that middle ground. And, and look, it's, it's really our challenge. If we want to advance, it's not for them to find the middle ground where we can all work together. It's for us to do that without compromising what we're about, and it's a real challenge. That's pretty well the end of that presentation, but happy to take questions on anything, or we've got a bit of a brain's trust at the back, anything at all to do with deer, hunting, that we think we've missed on the weekend, happy to take questions, and if we don't know the answer, we'll try and make up an alternative that's entertaining. Just earlier on, you were saying, like, if you ask the majority of people whether they oppose <coughs> hunting, they say, yes, they do. Yeah. Do you think if you turn around and said, do you oppose conservation, 
what would their response be? Oh, absolutely. If you ask the question differently, but yeah, there was a poll just before duck season this year, and there were people going, "Oh, that's rubbish." Seventy percent say, "You know, would you support a ban on duck hunting?" Was the question? Yeah, and just put that question with nothing else, the visceral reaction of most people, because they've had no exposure to it other than a five-second grab in the nightly news on the Sunday every March or whatever it is that they see of it, because they've had very little exposure, most people would say, no, I don't support it. And again, the challenge is for us to have that bigger conversation, and it's really hard because there's so much information there and there's so much media and it's not people's interest. That's why I push that venison diplomacy so much, and same if you're a duck hunter do some really nice stuff with the wild duck that you've taken and show people that it's it's good food that we value. Just on that top, almost sort of leading on, just where you're talking about look at Instagram and I don't know what sort of appetizer is or what how exposed um, sporting shooters, field and game and ADA are to the general public, but field and game and ADA, they look, it's presented in a very good way. There's recipes as people with nature, very natural. And sporting shooters Instagram looks really alarmist. It's just guns, ammo, the American song. It's actually portraying Absolutely. hunting in a very poor way. Yeah, look, different. Yeah, general public sort of like even Different organisations pitching yeah. to a different audience, I suppose. Um, that's quite clear, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to criticise how anyone else no, does their, does their social media. But, um, just noting the, um, the difference of the. We, we focus very much. I think we had a picture last week of a gun that makes a liar out of me, but we focus very much on hunting and wildlife management more so than we do on shooting. Yeah. And, you know, sporting shooters focus on shooting. Yeah. And it's great that there's someone doing that because we simply haven't got, as Neil said, I'm the one full-time employee doing that. We haven't got the resource to be to be having all those fights and we've really got to pick our battles. No, but if you're um, on the end of a public question there, yeah, would you support that having? And yeah. you saw sporting shooters Instagram posted, so no way. I'll, I'll be like Tony Jones on Q&A and I'll take that as a comment. <laughs> 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 Anyone else got anything? It's been a long weekend, so um, a bit of information overload. I remember doing this course myself and going home just absolutely exhausted <laughs> from it and hadn't got into the booze or anything like it. was just a big weekend. Look for a new hobby. Um, is there anything we can do to help you out, Barry? It sounds like you're a one-man job, it's a thousand bloke um, issue. Yeah, look, the, the first thing is go out and enjoy your hunting, take deer, be, be an ambassador, um, but certainly get involved. If you want to get involved in ADA through your branches is the best way to start getting involved, but there's, we're opening up other avenues for people to get involved in special interest groups. Through our, we launched a new website about four weeks ago. It's not quite where we want it to be. Yet, but it's getting there. But we're trying to trying to work on on ways for members to be more engaged, more directly. Um, we're getting there, but certainly, if you can get get along to your local branch and make yourself known and get involved, when we send you out campaign stuff, anyone who can visit their local member of parliament, it sounds really simple, but everyone who can go out once a year, go and visit your local member of parliament and just tell them who you are and what you do, make yourself known to them. Those sorts of local relationships, particularly if an issue gets really hot and it comes up in caucus, having individual local backbench MPs who know that they're going to be screwing over one of their own constituents is very, very powerful. What do you tell them? 
um, sort of stuff. <laughs> oh, that'd be fantastic. But hey, I'm a, I'm a hunter. Um, I've noticed that there's an issue, and if you follow our social media, our magazine, we're always bowling up issues. I've noticed that there's an issue with meat processing. Here's what I'd like to see. I really support it. Whatever your particular passion, an issue that takes your interest, go and talk to your local member of parliament and tell them your perspective on it. Really, really powerful thing to do when it gets to a real crunch in the party room and that local member of parliament isn't just <coughs> screwing over someone who they've never heard of, they're screwing over a local constituent who goes and sits in their office once a year, that's a very different equation for them. Yeah. That's one of the best things you can do. Any, any, um They don't, don't have to reply to anything, but certainly write to them. Letters work. The best thing you do is go and see them. Leave them with the one page. If you want to get involved in your local branch, not many local branches would knock you back from being involved. If there are, let me know. Because we all, everyone complains all on different things, but no one Make sure, as Baz said, that you know, our, people oppose us <coughs> up any bullshit they like. We have to have accurate and you know, positive information. And we've had campaigns, and I've you know, we've pushed out to people, you know, go and write, go and do this. And the response sometimes has been good. The response sometimes I've gone back into Parliament House and spoken to friendlies and said, How's this going? And they go, Not an issue, Barry. Haven't heard any noise. No one in our party's had any noise about it. No one's approached them. Would cheat sheets help? So that way you we're message. Yeah, to a degree, dot points, but the stuff we put out on issues in social media tends to be short, sharp. That's enough. Go and give your own perspective on that. I'm worried. 
everyone putting their own spin on it, one that we all go off and give a tangent to different issues as opposed to a unified message. You're still letting it be known that you're a deer hunter, you're for sensible deer management, and you're one of their constituents. Never go and tell a politician, hey, I vote, you know, well, yeah, they know. Like, there's stuff that they don't do. We, we don't threaten people. We're always very polite to people. You don't need to threaten people with votes. They know that you vote. What pays is for people to see a reasonable, sensible local constituent who's concerned about these issues. And we've got to be balanced and we've got to be realistic. If we're talking about deer, we can't say, oh, the, the, the deer are fine and their sunshines and lollipops and they're just improving the bush everywhere. We've got to be realistic about the damage that deer can do but being realistic is the key point on that, saying that it's not everywhere. We understand these animals. We obsess over them. We spend all our life in the bush looking at them or looking for them.